All right, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Are you there? Do you have your Bible? James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Get your Bible out, get ready to go, pull out your iPhone, whatever you've got, whatever you're using, get to the right spot. Today we are talking about this subject. James is addressing the rich. So I've titled the message, Wealth is a Good Tool to Steward, but a Horrible God to Worship. Now think about it. Wealth is a good tool to steward. God gives us wealth. We may possess it, but we don't own it. But God gives it to us as a tool that we can steward to utilize in this life. But it's a horrible God to worship. It is a God that never satisfies. It's a God that you can't rely on, that you can't trust, and is not always there. So today we want to look at the rich in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, in a message titled, Wealth is a Good Tool to Steward, but a Horrible God to Worship. Our text today is controversial. Uh, Here's how it's controversial. The commentators can't agree on whether it's addressed to the unsaved or to the saved. Some say it's addressed to the unsaved because he starts out and he does not say brothers. He says, come now, you rich. He uses that you rich. So he's still in this uh, condemning mindset more so than the my brother's mindset. So it appears that it could be to the lost. It does not call for repentance, which is odd in and of itself. And then it appears to point to a future judgment. Others would say, no, this has to address believers because it's in the book of James. The book of James, primarily as they would see it, is addressed to believers. And so here they would say this addresses believers. The thing I want you to recognize before we jump into the text is that money, wealth, or riches are neutral. So don't hear me say in any way today that being rich is a sin. That's not what the Bible says. Abraham was a man who was very wealthy. Riches are neutral. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, and we see that in 1 Timothy 6.10. Sin may enter our hearts and our minds through the means of acquiring wealth if we do it by fraud or improper means. Those attitudes that we have toward wealth could be sinful, or the way that we steward our wealth could be sinful, but the wealth itself is not sinful. The wealth is neutral. It's how we use it. It's what matters. So many people have, in fact, prayed, Lord, give me just enough that I will not covet, but not so much that I stop trusting in Jesus alone. And that's the problem, is if you have too little, the often the tendency is, oh, if I just had more money, everything would be okay, and you think it'll bring contentment, happiness, and peace. But then if you have too much, perhaps you trust in your money for your long-term health, your long-term success, and perhaps you stop trusting only in God. In James, we see the test of genuine faith. You remember back to James 1, where he talks about the fact that we should be unstained from the world. He talked about our tongue. He talked about loving the widows and the orphans and ministering to them. He goes through James chapter two, where he talks about the poor. He goes through James chapter three, where he talks about the tongue. He goes through James chapter five and four now, where he's talking about the worldliness and the ungodliness. So here we are laying out the ungodliness, uh, the evil of money. Money. It's the love of it. That's the root of all evil. You hear that in the song, money, 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 money. Anybody know that song? Yeah, you, I, you, I can't sing, so I, I won't even try it. But in that song, you have this person who thinks, oh, if I could just find the guy who has all the money, everything would be okay. Oh, but that's never going to happen. So then now I've got to go gamble for money so that I can get rich gambling for money because then everything's going to be okay. And it's that constant looking for satisfaction in something other than satisfaction in Christ that is wrong. God owns all the wealth, all the possessions, all the materials of the world. He allows us to steward some of it in this life, and it is required of a steward to be found faithful. So we see this. 
we often don't think of ourselves as rich. In fact, most of us probably, rather than thinking of ourselves as rich, relate more to the comedian who said, if money talks, all it ever says to me is goodbye. But we're talking about the rich. I got to make our text relevant to you. So think about worldwide. How many of you think you will one day be in the rich category worldwide? There's a few of you. Business majors, engineering majors, you say, I got this. I, oh yeah, I'm going to be there. We're going to do this thing and do it right. For the glory of God, we're going to do this thing and do it right, right? Here's what may surprise you. 56% of Americans rank in the world's high income group based on a July 2015 Pew Research article. To reach the high income ranking, how much money do you think you'd have to make per day? $50. $50 per day puts you in the high income ranking worldwide. The U.S. poverty line in our nation qualifies for middle income globally. According to another article, just $32,400 a year places you on the global rich list. And I'm pretty confident you don't sit here thinking $32,000 a year is rich. But when you think about the nations, when you think about the world and how poor some of them are, we are the rich worldwide. In James chapter 5, there are indictments against the rich. If you're not rich yet, you don't consider yourself rich yet, mark these down, write these down. Get these in your mind for in the future when the Lord may choose to bless you with wealth. James provides four indictments against the ungodly rich. Hoarding, fraud, indulgence, and cruelty. Let's read our text. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Come now. Come on, man. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Dear Lord, today as we talk about how to steward wealth wisely, I pray that you would just help us to catch a glimpse of what you would have for us to do as mature followers of Christ, how we can use wealth to glorify you, how we can reflect you in gracious and generous lifestyles. May Jesus be glorified. His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So James starts off here in chapter 5, verse 1. He has not read How to Win Friends and Influence People. He says, come now. We remember that from James chapter 4, verse 13, Friday a week ago, where we talked about that particular text, or Monday a week ago, I guess it was last Monday. And we talked about that text. He says, come now, which means, come on, man. He's saying to them, come on. And then instead of my brothers, he says, you rich. So he's still on his soapbox here. He's still not happy. And he tells the rich, he says, weep and howl. These words, how in particular, is onomatopoetic. It sounds like what it describes. 
It's frequently used in the Old Testament by the prophets, and in fact, in the Old Testament, only found in the prophets when he is condemning somebody of a coming judgment. So here, James is hearkening back to a group of people that would recognize what's being said, and he's saying to them, there is a coming judgment, weep and howl, phrases that would remind them back of what the prophets said to them, that would cause them to say, oh, this is not good news. He, He started with, come on, he's called us, you rich, and now he says, weep and howl, for there is a judgment that is coming. And in this judgment, he's going to pass four indictments on the ungodly rich. And the first indictment we see in verses two and three in his hoarding. Look at what he says here. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Now, in an agrarian society, you basically had three ways you measured your wealth. Your crops that you had harvested in, the clothes that you wore. You remember in the New Testament, they wore the purple. They would have on the clothes of royalty if they could afford them. And then your gold or your silver. It's slightly different in our society today, but, but you can see that as we live in the Midwest in a farming society, you can see them harvesting, putting things up in the barns. And so here what he's saying is that your hoarding, your riches have rotted. Your crops are going to rot. Your clothes, well, they're going to be moth-eaten. Those clothes that you value so much turn to moth-eaten. Those precious metals will corrode. Some of your translations may even mention the word rust. James understands here that that gold and silver doesn't rust. It corrodes, but that corrosion is also a play on words with the word poison. That rust or corrode has the same root as the word poison. You'll remember back when he's talking about the tongue, he says that that tongue is a poison. And here he's saying that wealth can also be a poison. And here he's saying in this text that he talks about that corroding. He says that corrosion will be evidence against you. All that you have hoarded up, all that you have saved, all that you are prideful of, look at all that I have is going to end up being evidenced against you one day. And he says here, it will eat your flesh like fire. This poison... The words that we say, the poison that reveals our hearts will eat our flesh like fire. The way we use our wealth, the things God has given us, those things which we possess that he owns, that we are stewards of when we use them unwisely, it testifies against us. No matter how little or how much you have, how you steward your possessions is a test of genuine faith. Do you trust in the possessions or do you trust in God? How you steward your possessions is a test of mature Christian faith. How do you see your possessions? How do you walk with those possessions? It's reported that John D. Rockefeller, who lived in Cleveland, Ohio at one point in time. Anybody from Cleveland in the room? And they're all sitting down here. How about that? All right. He once said, he was, by the way, one of the world's richest men at one point in time. Some have claimed he was the world's richest man and probably the first billionaire in the 1900s, somebody asked him the question, quote, how much money is enough? It's reported that he responded just a little bit more. If that's your mentality, that you never are content, you never are happy with what you have, it's always just a little bit more, perhaps this passage rings true in your mind. I think back. I I actually tried to find a good illustration. I couldn't find one. Uh, we looked at my wife's wedding dress last night to see. It's, it's yellowed some, but it's not yellowed enough to where it would be a good illustration on the stage. But you take a wedding dress, something that is, is valuable, that you, you, wanna, you wanna save, you wanna preserve, and yet it doesn't matter whether you, you treat it or, or whether you, do, you don't treat it. Over time, all of those things are gonna rot, they're gonna corrode, they're gonna yellow, they're gonna fade. 
Uh, hers hadn't been treated. We pulled it out of the closet. It was a little bit yellow. It wasn't as bright, shiny white as it was the day those doors swung open when she first wore it a few years ago. And it, it just wasn't exactly the same. I, I thought, okay, I need to go back even farther in time. So I went back and I pulled out, because I'm something of a hoarder. This is probably one of my weaknesses here. I pulled out something out of my closet called a letterman's jacket. Yeah, I graduated in 1991, and yes, it is still sitting in my closet. And I pulled out, and, and it, oh, it, the leather on the arms feel like vinyl. They have cracked. I, I almost brought it, but again, it just, it, it didn't get across exactly what's saying here. Maybe I'm not old enough, but you, you think, and we thought about the things that have been eaten. We throw them away. You, you see a shirt that has holes in it because it's just been eaten or corroded. What do you do with it? You throw it away. You just get rid of it. You chunk it out because it's now worthless. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that if you store up all of these crops, they're going to rot. They're going to be worthless. If they're rotten, you don't eat them. It's nasty. It's disgusting. You take these clothes that you value at one point in time, these garments that indicate your wealth or your riches, you can't keep them. They're going to rot. They're going to corrode. They're going to rust. All of these valuable things, the gold, all of the things that you look at, it's not going to last. It's not going to satisfy. So this mentality of hoarding is something that we should avoid. In fact, we look back at Matthew 6, 19 through 21 as a cross-reference for us on this, and it says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where the moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither the moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and that is the ultimate test of faith. Your treasure and possessions? Because if your treasure is in possessions, there is where your heart is also. Where's your treasure in serving Lord, serving your Lord with the possessions that He has given you? And if the treasure is serving the Lord and eternity in heaven, there is where your heart is also. We must balance prudent saving with sinful hoarding. It's not evil to save. The Bible commends saving. The Bible does not commend hoarding. There's a second indictment that we see in this text. We see it here in verse 4. It's fraud. Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here we see what we see in the parable in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, you have the laborers, the day laborers, they're chosen, they go out to the fields, they work, at the end of the day, they come back and they're paid their wages. And those wages are what they then use to go and buy food. They're basically living day to day, uh, they're living paycheck to paycheck, if you will, they need the money, and here what is happening is the ungodly rich are saying, I'm not gonna give you your wages today, I'm gonna hold them overnight, I'll give them to you later, and then they're going home, perhaps they're going home hungry, perhaps they're going home with no money so that they can't buy food for their family, and here, the cries of those people who are being unjustly treated, the cries of those who are being defrauded are going up to the Lord, and it says it's going up to the Lord of hosts. This was clearly condemned in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 says this, you shall not oppress the hired worker who is poor and needy. He is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who is in the land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The Bible does not condemn acquiring wealth, but it does condemn acquiring wealth through unjust means. We look out at our society. 
we even know as an institution that when we deal with certain companies that they'll say things to us like, we'll give you a better deal because we know you're going to pay your bills on time. We look out at society and we see people who don't pay their bills on time, who are always late. And as believers in Christ, it's a bad testimony for us when we are always late paying our bills or if we're late paying those who work for us. The same principle applies here whether you're the rich person or whether you're somebody that's paying your bills. When somebody does a job and you don't pay them for it, that's defrauding them of something that they need, something that they have earned, something that is right to give them. Here it says that that will go up to the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord Sabaoth. It's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew meaning armies used here with the Lord. The Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts, the one who is almighty, the one who is all powerful, that's the one that's gonna hear the cries as they go up. That's the one that David invoked when he was fighting Goliath. You remember what David said when he went to Goliath? Goliath said to him, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And David in responding back to him says, you come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel's whom you have defiled in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We remember also it was the love of money that caused Judas, who from time to time would take from the treasury to betray our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Did that satisfy him? The 30 pieces of silver that he eventually threw down in the temple? No, it didn't satisfy him at all. It haunted him. So here's a question for you. How much would I have to write on a check right now today to hand to you, to say to you, give me your Bible, never go to church, never read a Bible again, and walk away from your faith? How much would I have to write on that check to hand to you for you to betray your Lord? If in your mind a number arose, that's a problem. There's no amount of money worth the relationship I have with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no number of zeros you can put on a check that's better than the relationship of walking and having fellowship with the one who died on the cross and gave his life for me. If in your mind you're still thinking, well, I don't know, that's a lot of money. I could do a lot of things with that amount of money. If that's where you are in your Christian walk, I would say to you that you either don't have a genuine faith or you are either very immature in your faith at this point in time. The ungodly rich, he's condemned. He's condemned through hoarding. He's condemned through fraud. There's another condemnation that comes here, another indictment. It's indulgence. Look at verse five. It says, you have lived on the earth. Notice it says on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. In the day of slaughter is pointing toward a future condemnation. So James is saying in this earthly temporal condemnation on this earth, you have lived in your own self-indulgence, that you have lived in luxury, but you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. And, and I like what he's doing here. He's talking about fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. And in the minds of all of the Jewish readers who are reading this, they're thinking back to the Old Testament sacrifices. They're thinking back to the sheep and to the oxen who are out in the field grazing. And with each bite that that sheep takes, as it chews and swallows and fattens itself up a little bit more, it doesn't realize that it is one step closer to the slaughter. With each bite that the oxen takes as he eats and as he eats without a care in the world, without a concern in the world, as he continues to eat, he 
continues to move himself one step closer to the slaughter. And here's the imagery that God is is giving through James here when he says, those who live in a luxury and a self-indulgent, the ungodly rich who are not given a thought to eternity, but they're only thinking about the temporal, are living life and they're eating and they're enjoying and they're in their hedonistic impulses. And as they go through this, they don't understand that step by step, they are one step closer to the slaughter of judgment. They are fattening their heart. I think this speaks to our country. I think this speaks to our inclinations. I think this speaks to our world. It hearkens me back in my mind to Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus telling the parabolic story of the rich man who had his purple garments. He fared sumptuously every day. He ate and he ate and he had no concern For Lazarus, the poor man, laid at his gates, desiring just the crumbs that would fall from his table where the dogs came to lick his wounds. And yet that great eternal reversal takes place when God calls them both home and Lazarus then, suffering in this life, is called to be in Abraham's bosom in the next life. And the rich man who had all of his luxury and all of his self-indulgence in this life is in eternal torment in the next life. He just wants a drop of water to cool his tongue. How many people do we see in our country, in our nation, maybe even in our midst, who are so focused on wanting a life of luxury and self-indulgence? What's your desire for life? I want to get a degree. I want to get a good job. I want to live comfortably. I want to live an easy life. I want to have luxury. I want to have it easy. Or say, I want to use the gifts God has given me. I want to get a degree. I want to have a platform for ministry. I want to go and do whatever God wants me to do, wherever God wants me to do it. And if that's a hard life, that's okay because I'm not living to have an easy life in this world. I'm living to make a difference in this world because I'm living for the next world. And I'm living to serve the Savior that died on a cross and didn't ask for an easy life in this world who had nowhere to lay his head, but he went on a cross and he spread his arms out and he died for my sin. I want to follow in the footsteps of my Savior. I don't want an easy life here. I don't want a place that's just going to make me comfortable. I want to live for Jesus and have a radical life. What is your desire? Where are you? It's a test of genuine faith. It's a test of how mature your faith is. You see it here. We must be cautious in the luxury of creature comforts that prevent us from living this life as pilgrims passing through this world and citizens of another We should desire, at least in our minds, if not in other ways, to be spiritually trim and fit, ready for the commission that the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, will give us. We should not desire to feed the ungodly desires of complacency, pleasure, desire, self-centered wanting as it grows roots of an unwillingness to follow God to the hard places. This is one of my great fears. Just to be open with you, in the position where God has placed me to serve, it can be very comfortable. I get to worship with you guys every week. I get to work with a faculty and staff that love the Lord, phenomenal Christians. We get to walk into this chapel with this technology, the ability to do so many things. Live in a comfortable house, drive a vehicle, can eat at Chuck's anytime I want. They have ice cream all the time. I mean, how does life get any better than soft-serve chocolate ice cream every single time you want it, right? I mean, these are the good things. And in my own heart, 
I continually have to ask myself the question, Lord, if you told me tomorrow, turn in a resignation, quit, and go to the middle of Africa where nobody will ever know your name and where you will never have soft-serve chocolate ice cream again, would you do it? And that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. It doesn't mean I'm not content with where the Lord has me. I'm very thankful for where the Lord has me. But would I be content if the Lord put me somewhere very differently? Is my desire to be comfortable or to follow the Lord with radical obedience? And and you gotta make up your mind that you wanna follow the Lord with radical obedience before you're in that comfortable state or you will never get out of that comfortable state. That's the decision you have to make now. How are you gonna use your wealth? How are you gonna use your money? 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. I like a quote here from Dan Doriani. Any, Any coffee lovers in the house? How many of you like coffee? All right, this quote will relate to you somewhat. Material wealth only temporarily quenches the soul's thirst for meaning and acceptance. Acquiring wealth to cure the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion. It can mask the problem, but it cannot cure it. How many of you are drinking coffee right now to mask the problem of exhaustion? I see a coffee cup in one of the people's hands that's raised. My coffee cup's right down here beside the television. I will have it in my hand the rest of the day probably because I'm there with you. But spring break is coming. Praise the Lord, right? And the cure for exhaustion is sleep. Coffee. No, it's not. You know, it just masks the problem. That's the bad thinking of riches giving us worth and meaning, right? It's not the riches that give us the worth and meaning. You see what he's saying here. There's a fourth indictment. The fourth indictment is cruelty. I'm not sure I've captured this well enough. I'll read the text to you. You you can maybe pick a better word than what I found. It says in verse 6, In the condemnation of the rich, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Condemned and murdered. Strong words. Uh, cruelty is, is, how I, is how I've worded it, just for memory's sake. It's often the case that those who have wealth have political power. It's often the case that those who have wealth can hire high-priced lawyers to go to court to mistreat others. It's often the case that because they can do that, then they can end up condemning other people, or in this case, James even says murdering them, perhaps murdering them through holding back the funds, not allowing them to buy the food so they starve to death. I don't know, perhaps this is an argument pushing towards absurdity just to emphasize it. Perhaps James has in mind Jesus. Because if there's anybody that was ever the righteous person, it's Jesus. But I don't think we ought to limit this verse to only Jesus because it says here at the end of it, he does not resist you. And that's a continual voice there. That's not the past tense that you'd see in the first part. A continual voice. And we know that in every age, there are the righteous person, the righteous people who get thrown in jail unjustly. And we know some even right now, pastors in other countries who have been thrown in jail unjustly. We see in social agendas how those who have money press issues into the courts to accomplish their worldview and their social agenda. I'm reminded of a comic strip. The ruler states 
Remember the golden rule. We must all live by the golden rule. Someone asks, what's the golden rule? A nearby person explains, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And it sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? The rich think nothing can stop them. They have the power over the poor. But judgment comes. One day, the just judge of the universe will set all things right. The Old Testament system is very clear that judges were not to be greedy, Exodus 18.21, or partial to the rich or to the poor, Leviticus 19.15. Bribery was to be condemned, Isaiah 35.15, Micah 3.11. Amos also denounced those who took bribes in Amos 5.12. We see the same thing from time to time today. We see those who have money threaten lawsuits because they know businesses that have insurance companies are going to end up paying out or settling out of court because they don't want to go to court because paying lawyers and court costs and fees can be expensive and they abuse the system because they have the money to pay for that and they know they can force it to try to get their way. And so they do it over and over again. In fact, I've been overseas several different times, and many of you may be able to relate to this. We were overseas in one particular country. I won't name it because I I don't want to defame that country. But as we were in that country, we rented a car so we could go see something. When we rented the car, they told us where we were renting the car. Now, it's very likely you're going to get stopped by the police because you're not a national. When the police stop you, you give them a $100 bill, and they will let you go. And that's the way the system works in this country. That's usually not the standard information you receive when you're renting a car from Avis or Hertz or something in the United States, right? Don't speed, don't break the law, don't get caught, you'll be okay. Sign this waiver form, take out this insurance, add all these fees, all that other stuff. But they don't tell you you pay $100 to the law person who stops you because that's the bribe that you have to pay to keep going. Unjustice, bribery, condemnation. You think about it. Wealth. It's a good tool to steward, but a horrible God to worship. Matthew 6, 24 reminds us that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Quickly here in closing, an application slide. What do we do? What are our steps to prevent us from being the ungodly rich? Number one, tithe. You say, wait a second, 10% is not in the New Testament. Yeah, 10% is probably far too little, so don't go there with me on this particular discussion. We'll talk about that some other time. Tithe, if you possess it but don't own it and God owns it and you're giving back some of what he has given to you and you give it to him first, you say, wait a second, I don't make anything. God's given you something. Do you trust God to give you more? Are you going to give it back to him? Or are you going to say, no, God, I need it all. And if you haven't been faithful with the little that God's given you now, how do you expect God to give you more to be faithful with later? If you're a steward and not an owner and it's required to be found faithful as a steward, then tithe. Because tithe puts money in its proper place. It says, God, you gave it to me. I'm going to give back to you for your work, for your purposes, because I trust you to give me exactly what I need. I don't trust myself with this. I trust you, so I'm going to return it to you. Tithe, even now, right now, off very little, whatever you get, Whatever you earn, tithe. Get that habit of life, that principle of life. We can talk more about that later. Save, but don't hoard or trust in money. You need an emergency savings plan. So when bad things happen, you don't have to go and use credit cards to go into debt. You have money set aside. That is an emergency savings plan that you can use, that you can lean back on. Learn to be content with what the Lord's given you. Don't always seek to have the newest, the best, the brightest 
coveting all of the things of the world. Learn to be content with what the Lord gives you. Pay your bills on time. Avoid credit card debt. The interest is high. You don't need it. And let me say this to you. Watch your debt levels. Cedarville student who is here investing in Cedarville, you're investing in yourself. It is a wise investment to invest in truth, but watch your debt levels. If you know you're in a major where you're going to go out and you're going to earn $32,500 a year, watch your debt levels. Be wise with that. Have a plan as soon as you walk across the graduation stage to retire your debt and get rid of it as quickly as you can. And I know this may not be a popular thing for a president to say, wanting to retain students and grow a student body, but my concern is more about you and your welfare than it is about an ultimate number. Watch your debt levels. Be wise, okay? You know your major. You know what you're going to earn. You know what you can do. Be wise with it. Don't just sit back and not work and not earn and enjoy and let that number increase and increase and increase and then find the right person. And then both of you have let that number increase and increase and increase and all of the stress the first few years is gonna be over all of those numbers that have increased. Be wise, have a plan, have a strategy to take care of the debt. Be honest in all your financial dealings. Business majors, be honest in all of your financial dealings and create win-win situations. You're not out to cheat somebody. You're not out to try to get a deal that's a better deal than anybody else can have so you can talk about how good a deal it is. Be wise. Create win-wins. Fight against unjust systems that oppress the poor. All the things that come to mind first are payday loans at super high interest rates gambling schemes that are set to give the poor a glimmer of hope that perhaps they're going to earn money that's not going to satisfy in the first place. And really all they do is take the money away from them so they can't even put food on the table. Finally, nurture a spirit of gratitude and generosity. I think we reflect God who is given generously and graciously best when we do the same. I think of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave, and he gave his only son. If you want to reflect God and how you use your wealth, be generous and gracious. I'm going to pray. They're going to come. We're going to sing two songs as we sing out of here. Let's worship the God who's given graciously and generously to us. Dear Lord, we thank you for trusting us with the possessions that you have trusted us with. Lord, may we never think that we own them. May we always think that we're just a steward of them. God, may we be good stewards. God, may we reflect you in love for others, in generosity, in giving. And Lord, now as we sing and we praise you, may we do so from our hearts, just with thankfulness for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.